I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 1 for our passage this morning. Two weeks ago, we were looking at John chapter 1, verse 14, which many scholars deem the heart of John's gospel letter. In that one verse, we talked about how Jesus Christ became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And by doing so, we have received grace and truth. I mentioned two weeks ago that as we saw that verse and the truth it contained, for the rest of John's letter, we will be unpacking that idea that grace and truth will be applied through realization that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. This is certainly true, this idea um, that this is important and significant for us as we consider our text this morning, but also as we continue forward looking at those that were impacted by this grace and truth. But sometimes it is readily seen, it is something that is quickly evident, and sometimes, and unfortunately in our impatient lives and impatient culture, it is something upon which we have to wait. Many of you may know um, farmers, um, some of you may be farmers. Um, those I, I find more often than not are some of the most God-fearing people on this planet are farmers. Why? Well, because their livelihood, their family's livelihood depends upon a harvest that they have no control over. Yes, they can plant the seed, and yes, they can pick which plot of land is going to receive the right amount of sun and rain. Yes, they can ask the nitrogen level in the soil and um, see what's been planted in it previously to see which nutrients it's deficient in and which one it has in excess. Yes, they can um, take care of um, either using pests or using natural resources to protect that plant all throughout the season, but at the end of the day, after months of work and labor and toil, it is only God that produces that harvest. And I believe farmers know that well. I believe that this is so much the case that Jesus frequently uses this illustration, doesn't he? He speaks to farmers, he speaks to soldiers, he speaks to shepherds. And so he uses that idea of the Christian life being that way. We do the work. We sow the seed. We share the good news of the gospel. We let his truth go forth in faith, trusting that in time he will provide the harvest. And that's the important part is realize that he's the only one who can provide that harvest. But what we will see this morning as we look at our passage is that he does. And because he does, that is grace. The fact that the Lord provides harvest for His glory and the good of His people is His grace. Would you please follow along with me as we read of that grace? Um, even though we've, we've already covered it, I want to start in verse 14 and read through the 18th verse of John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please bow with me as we ask the Lord of the harvest to provide a yield from his faithfulness this day. Would you please bow? Almighty God, you have presented us this morning with your word. We have sung your songs. We have heard of your truth. We have confessed our sin and our need of forgiveness. And now we approach your sacred text asking that you would produce a harvest in our lives, that you would grow an abundance of faith, that you would help us depend upon you more, trust in you more, rest at your lap. For those that may be here this day that do not yet know you, may this word bear upon them like a weight. May it bear over them like a mighty stone, and may they see their need for your mercy, and that as well as grace. So I pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had a moment in your life, something that you were looking forward to? And I find when you get these moments, one of two things happens. They either exceed your expectations. I've mentioned that before with things like the Grand Canyon and the, the stars in Colorado. Or maybe sometimes they prove underwhelming. I'm a Mississippi native, except for a brief stint in uh, Kansas and Missouri. I lived my life here, my childhood certainly. And I found myself every Christmas, as, as many of you might have, and many of you might have not, prayed for snow. That was this little Mississippi boy's dream, was to have a white Christmas. We sung about it, and it was this glorious, magical, wonderful, amazing thing to have a white Christmas. As many of you know, I'm, I was born in 88, and uh, I was here uh, through 2016. There wasn't a lot of white Christmases in that time span in the state of Mississippi, was there? And then um, after married and then having our, our first child, we were called to uh, serve just outside of Kansas City in Overland Park, Kansas, 2016. And that first winter... We had a 10-day window. In that 10-day window, it never got above freezing. The wind chill was around 10. We received, I believe, if I'm remembering right, about a foot and a half of snow. I learned a few things that winter. One, when you have snow, you have to do something with it. It has to be shoveled. It has to be moved. Two, when you're not in the south, people don't shut down because of snow. I had this idyllic mindset, oh wow, how great it'll be to stay home with my family and go and play and have all these wonderful things happen. And the, the head pastor and the associate pastor of our mother church were from Buffalo, New York. And I called them the Sunday morning that that started and I said, you've got to get an announcement out. We, we've got to close down church. What are you talking about, Aaron? We expect you here in 15 minutes. Don't cancel church. Needless to say, I, I come to appreciate snow in my seven years in Kansas and Missouri. I don't pray for it any longer. 
it in fact come to be an underwhelming experience. I had this idea of snow that was magical and dreamy. The reality was anything but. Well, I can tell you this. No one who has come to Christ, come to know him, to trust him, to see him as the scriptures portray him, has walked away underwhelmed. No one has met the Savior and said, that didn't meet my expectations. In fact, the way of it goes, the more we come to know Christ, the more we realize who he is and what he has done, the more we are in awe of him. It is not one of those that we go, ah, I'm sorry I experienced that. And John knows this, and John knows this well. In fact, he will spend the rest of his letter giving us case study after case study after case study of people who came in contact with their Savior. And experience after experience, moment after moment, scene after scene, people are going to walk away changed. Now, some are going to be changed because they reject the message and reject the messenger, but some are going to be changed because their lives have been changed. John himself was one whom his life was changed because of Christ. And again, I say this is an act of God's grace. The fact that he provides his love for us in this way is grace. That's what we will focus on this morning is God's graciousness. And we're going to see that in three different sections of our passage. And the first one we're going to see comes from verse 15 where we see that John the Baptist affirms Christ's authority, and that is a measure of God's grace. Would you follow along with me? And before we read that passage again, if you were with us last week, I hope that you were, um, Dr. Scholl preached for us um, a beautiful uh, passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, a famous passage for the defense of the Scriptures. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof, correction, teaching, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. God's Word stands alone. God's Word is true because it is God's Word, and we trust it, we believe it, we receive it on that measure alone. But here's the thing, the beauty of God and an act of His grace Quite often, while that is enough, he gives us evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence that we may be all the more sure that this is so. We hear from God and we should respond in faith because he says it. But John is making a case. He's making an argument in this letter. And so he's going to bring us witness after witness after witness to give testimony to what he is saying. And here, John the Baptist is given as one of those witnesses. We talked about him last week, and um, we're Lord willing, we're going to talk about him for the next two weeks. In the next two weeks, Jesus himself will get to interact with John the Baptist, and we'll, we'll hear the firsthand account. But here, the, the John, the apostle, John the author, puts in this verse 15. And, and maybe in your Bible, as it is in mine, that's in brackets. Um, that's because this is meant to be a commentary on verse 14. So John the Apostle is giving us a commentary on verse 14 by what he has witnessed in John the Baptist. Keep, keep your Johns clear here, and I'll try to do the same. We get these words, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said... 
he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is supposed to give evidence to the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, John the Baptist met Jesus. And so what John the Baptist is saying, and again, Lord willing, we'll see in the remainder of chapter one, I saw him. The word of God did become flesh. The word of God has dwelt among us. I've seen it. And I testify to what is being said is true. He so believed in it, and I I believe down to the word that the Bible is inspired and that each word is important. Listen to how he said it. It's not just someone backed him into a corner. John, is it true? Is he who you said he is? Is it real? And he's like, well, yeah, I I guess so. No, what what does your passage say? How did John proclaim this news? John bore witness about him and cried out. He excitedly, with passion and with energy and with disregard to the consequences or the potential outcome, said, this man is God. He did not keep it to himself. And just in case you're unfamiliar with the cost, it'll be his life. This message that he proclaims, this truth that he affirms, his acting as a witness will cost him his life. Ultimately, he will be beheaded thanks to a scorned woman because of the truth that he proclaimed. But did it stop him from doing it? No. You see, the grace and mercy of our Lord is that when God gets a hold of us, when we become so convicted of the scriptures and the truth of it, we will by consequence share that truth with others without worry and fear of the cost, without worrying what might I say, without worrying what will happen to me, because we will have a love for God greater than a fear of the world. It is God's grace that when he gets a hold of us like this, we see this. And we'll see this through John. This is not the only account you'll get of someone being radically transformed due to Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would be so willing to follow in his footsteps. That we would not fear the political and religious climate of our day. Oh, that we would know and appreciate that this day around the world, we have brothers and sisters hiding in caves and basements, that they are worshiping with a guard at the door to make sure that they can worship and the truth can be heard despite fierce opposition and persecution. And what does this do? What does this do for the author's message? Well, it affirms the authority of Jesus, right? John the Baptist is saying he is who we say he is. He is the word of God. He has become flesh. He does dwell amongst men. And by the way, he is above me in rank. He has a higher authority than me because he was before me. That may may sound like a strange statement there, but in Jewish culture and custom, because technically John the Baptist was older from an earthly perspective, his authority should have 
superseded Jesus's. But John is quick to go, whoa, no, 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 no. <laughs> if, you're gonna, if you're gonna count years, you've gotta go back to the beginning. Jesus has a higher rank. And so I point to him. And that's something else we can learn from John the Baptist, isn't it? Jesus himself calls John the, the greatest prophet. It says on earth there's not been an equal to him. And what does John do? He goes, yep, that's me. Here I am. No one else like me. No. He's a neon sign. He, he defers. He points away. He says, no, look at him. Me, I'm, I'm just the signpost. I'm just telling you which way to go, which way to look, which way to turn, which way to hope. And that again is God's grace. It is God's grace that he gave us John the Baptist. It is God's grace that he tells us through these prophets, through the writings, look this way. It's not to ourselves, it's not to others who carry authority and wisdom and truth. Again, um, you'll, you'll hear this from me often, I carry no authority before you this day that does not come from the word of God. I preach and proclaim on his behalf, through his power, by his strength. And so far as I am accurate to the scriptures, you receive truth and blessing. And when I err and run astray, you're getting the words of Aaron and not the words of God, and that's a lot cheaper deal. But it is God's grace that he has given us his word, and that he has given us his messengers. It is again, as we, we think about John's message and we think about the implication of it, we find ourselves uh, looking at the next two verses of our section this idea that Jesus was before John the Baptist, that he comes before him, what is the significance of that? What is the impact? Well, the impact and the significance is what we see in verses 16 and 17 in that Jesus Christ fulfills the law. He has been from the beginning. He set everything in place. And now he comes as the fulfillment of everything that has been proclaimed And if you put it together in your Bibles, verse 14 and verse 16 really are the continuation of one thought. And we get that, like I said, that, that parenthetical remark in verse 15 where we put in, and John the Baptist says, this is true. He's given you, a, you know, evidence to what's being said. But then if you read it like this, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Now let's clear something up really quick here. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We could potentially interpret that Jesus became full when he became flesh. The word of God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And from his fullness, we have seen grace upon grace, right? That, that, that would, you could conceive how one could interpret that passage in that way. Don't. <laughs> Please don't. That is completely wrong. We do not want to say that Jesus was incomplete, lacking, or in some way not whole before he became man. He was fully God. He needed nothing else. It was his grace that he chose to become man. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, clears this up for us. He says this, verse 14 describes the glory of God manifest in the incarnate word as full of grace and truth. Picking up on that term, John says it is from this fullness 
that we have received grace after grace. The fullness here bears no technical Gnostic sense. Basically, the fullness is referring to the measure of grace that he pours out, not his own nature or essence. Let me simplify that really quickly. Jesus is complete. He lacks in nothing. He needs of nothing. Out of his fullness, of his store of grace, he pours it out on us richly. Out of the fullness, the full measure, he pours out of his cup and there's not any out. What does that mean for us practically? For those of you who are trusting in the Lord, resting in him, you receive a special measure of that grace. For you have been given the truth. You have heard the word of God and you have responded to the word of God. That is grace on top of grace. You know who he is and you know who you are. In another way, God's grace is poured out on the world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. It is gracious that any of us get up in the morning. It is gracious and his mercy that even pagans are able to understand certain levels of truth. We get mathematical truth, scientific truth from them. The world, there's great marvels and advances in society. But that grace upon grace that is poured out on us is a special grace. It's a, it's a grace that understands our God and our Savior. That's one way of looking at this grace that God pours out. There's another way of looking at it as well. It's a very difficult uh, preposition there. Uh, and for any of you that know Greek, know that just prepositions are difficult, period. You can just leave that as the sentence. But one way we could look at this is this grace that God pours out upon us is grace after grace or grace in addition to grace. So what does that look like? It's not that God has a box of grace up in heaven for Aaron. And tomorrow is a hard day. For whatever reason life throws at me, Monday is, is bad and I need a heavy dose and so God says, all right, Aaron's got 15 units left that's supposed to last him the next 50 years, but it was a bad Monday. We're going to use three today. And so now he's down three units of grace. He better have a good next 50 years, right? Because the store's going to run out. No, that's not how God deals with his people, is it? That's not how God deals with his children. You see, God says Aaron needs grace today, and he pours out that grace and then he goes back to the store tomorrow, his storehouse, and says Aaron needs grace, and yet there's still as much grace in the cup as there was the day before. And even though we don't always deserve it, well, we don't deserve it, and even though we are often falling short of his standard, what does God do? I will pour my grace out upon them. I will love them despite themselves. I will love them because of who I am, not because of who they are. And so God's grace is poured out again and again and again and again. And it is grace upon grace. And it is only from the fullness of Christ that we can receive this. And we know this is true because, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The greatest act of grace that God himself became man to dwell upon his people, to die that we might have, live. I love what um, Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter three. 
Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's grace and mercy is not finite. We do not have to spread it out. But we can trust that He will not run out of grace. Nor will we run out of a need for it. Let's be clear. And oh, how that should give us hope, dear Christian. Oh, how that should give us comfort. Oh, how that should give us peace. That God's grace is never ending. He pours it out freely and abundantly. And to understand that grace as if we we would have trouble grasping it, and that's the truth. We do have trouble grasping the depth of that grace of God. We get verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that four ties us together. Everything that's come before it now is applied here. For the people of the Old Testament, what was that measure of God's grace? That measure was His Word, His commandments. We read from Deuteronomy 5 this morning, the commands of God that the people of Israel might live in obedience of their God, and by doing so they would trust in Him, hope in Him, and rest in Him, and by doing so they would have peace. Something we often neglect as we think about the people of Israel, though, they weren't supposed to keep it to themselves. They were charged, they were commanded, go through the Deuteronomical law. They were actually to share that with the Gentile world. They were to spread that truth to others that they might have that grace. Well, the problem with that was is they kind of imploded before they could really carry that out. And they didn't really want to do that in the first place. That's kind of the nature of the Old Testament. But God was gracious in giving them His Word and giving them His presence But we who live as post-New Testament Christians, we who live today, it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised one, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David who sits on the throne, the sacrificial lamb, and as we will see in John, the great I am. Jesus brings with him and through him the truth of the Scriptures. Now we might ask, and rightly so, we ask ourselves, well, did Jesus replace the grace of the Old Testament? Does He now do away with the law? Does He do away with the Old Testament truths? Thankfully, He knew that we would ask that question, and on the Sermon on the Mount, He answers, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you know why following the Ten Commandments, the reading of the Ten Commandments in our liturgy, we then go into a confession? Is there any other conclusion to reading the commandments of God than to go, oh, sorry God, I've not done so well. Is there any other response than to say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. 
You've commanded obedience and love and a lack of idolatry and a lack of stealing and a lack of hatred and uh, all of those things, Lord, to not to covet, to not to bear false witness. And I can't do it, and I'm not doing it. But there was one who did. His name is Jesus. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. One dot, one iota, he completed it down to the period and then gave himself as a sacrifice. He doesn't do away with the Old Testament. He shows us that the Old Testament is just like John the Baptist. It points to him. It's a mile marker. It is a neon sign saying, look to me. And that really culminates itself in verse 18, for it is not just that John gives us a testimony, it's not just that Jesus fulfills the law, it's that Jesus Christ reveals God to us. One of the themes we will see throughout this letter, for John is making the case, is Jesus as the better or Jesus as the greater, and then we're going to fill in the blank many times in this letter. Jesus is the better, the greater Moses. Jesus or excuse me, Moses meets the great I am. He hears the name of God. What does Jesus say? I am that which I am. Moses is granted a, a momentary glimpse of the Lord. Uh, his, his backside while well, he's in the cleft of a rock. I love what D.A. Carson puts it effectively, an afterglow of the glory of the Lord is all he's permitted to see lest he be killed by the overwhelming radiance of his presence. Look at others in the scriptures. Isaiah and his vision, he only sees the hem of the Lord's garment in the temple and he's almost overcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace for their faith. And what do they say? We see one like the Son of God. To this point in scripture, in history, no one had truly seen the Father and yet what John says here, he says it boldly, but he says it clearly, in Christ we have seen him. Jesus is God made known to us. Do you understand the significance of that? Like, does that weigh on you this day? Just the, the that idea, that concept? In most religions, you can search most world religions, their gods are aloof. They're distant you can't know them. In fact, it would be blasphemy to know them. You can't have anything to do with them. They're God and you're not. It's, it's, it's that uh, refrain from Matilda. I'm big, you're little. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm right, you're wrong. But that's not our God. The God of the Bible says He became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen Him. John is very careful here to see or to say that we know God through Christ. The greatest measure of God's grace is that he invites us to know him. He calls us to submit ourselves to him. Left on our own, we would be completely without hope, wouldn't we? We would not want to go to God. We would not want to trust in him. So he sends his Holy Spirit. He, he turns our hearts from sin and toward the Savior so that we can look upon Christ. By his grace, he makes himself known to us and calls us to surrender our lives and be born again. 
My prayer for all of us is that we receive and rest and hope and trust in that grace. My greatest prayer for all of us is that we know him. John the Baptist confirmed it. I have seen him. He is true. The entire Old Testament confirms it. He is doing everything we were told to do. Everything he commands, he has followed. Every single period has been completed in and through him. And then Jesus himself has made the Father known. His own testimony is that I am he. And that is a measure of God's grace. My prayer for you today and my prayer for you this week is that you are resting and hoping and receiving that grace each and every day. Let us pray. Almighty God, we need that grace. We need grace upon grace, which does not empty, which does not have a bottom. Lord, we who trust in you need that, for we are tired, we are weary, we are heavy burdened with the, the weight of this world. We need reminding that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, there may be those that hear this message this day that do not know you. They need you as well. They need you all the more, Lord, for they sit under your judgment, not under your grace. Lord, I pray for every mind and every heart here this day. I pray for your people that we would see you through your Son and that by your grace we would see evidence after evidence as we continue in this wonderful, beautiful book that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.